0: got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
1: What are you getting so crazy about? It's
2: just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music
3: critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cutt. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, it is that time of year, Jim. Lots of new releases, lots of hype and a few quality records. We're going to (laughs) try to separate the hype from the quality. Five pretty important records that we want to talk about today. We're excited about this roster of records. What are they, Greg? Well, we're going to be looking at this new chamber pop record from the December. It's a band we've talked about on the show uh, several times. They are making their major label debut. We've also got the genre-bending dance pop of the Scissor Sisters, one of the biggest bands in England. But can that music translate to the American market? We're going to find out. Ironic,
2: considering that they're from New York, but number one in the UK right now. A couple of other the records the hold steady it's a band that started out as lifter puller from minneapolis is now based in brooklyn big buzz on this record as they tour plus we're going to catch up with a uh, blockbuster release or is it i suppose that's the question janet jackson's uh, eagerly awaited post wardrobe malfunction album <laughs> 20 years old but first as always on sound opinions we have some news <laughs>
3: Song you may have heard on the radio, it's called Here It Goes Again, but more likely you may have viewed it on YouTube. That is the band OK Go with the song Here It Goes Again. Jim, YouTube has become a phenomenon in the last year thanks to bands like OK Go putting up their videos on the website and then having them virally spread to millions and millions of viewers. They have become such a hot commodity that Google incorporated has just spent 1.65 billion dollars to buy youtube.com. So what we have here is a merger between the biggest search engine on the web, Google, and the biggest purveyor of videos on the web in YouTube a little more than a year ago, the founders of
2: YouTube, this guy Chad Hurley and Steve Chen, were (laughs) dreaming this up in a garage, literally. I mean, this is one of the great Silicon Valley internet success stories of all time. Well, listen to these guys, Hurley and Chen. uh, They're particularly giddy. This is what they're announcing on their own YouTube (laughs) with a video. They're announcing this big deal the other day.
3: This is Chad and Steve. We're the co-founders of the site, and we just want to say thank you. Today, we have some exciting news for you. We've been
2: acquired by Google. Yeah, thanks. Thanks to all, every one of you guys that um, have been contributing to YouTube, the community. Um, we, would be, we wouldn't be anywhere close to where we are without the help of this community. Thanks a lot. And this is great. Two kings have gotten together. And we're going to be able to provide you an even better service yeah. and uh, build even more innovative
3: features for you.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know. Just keep going. <laughs> So that's what it sounds like, Jim, to get a $1.65 billion stock deal when a little you're bit uh, giddy. not even 30 yet. What we really have now is, like the rest of,
2: of major media, YouTube is going to turn into this vehicle for you to sit there and be advertised to. Well,
3: Google didn't buy it to just sit there and say, wow, this is so cool, this underground phenomenon. Let's spread, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's spread this kind of wild, wild west mentality. No. They bought it to monetize it, to use yes. a really heinous... 21st century term I mean right now
2: somebody sends you an email that says you know you like cats there's this cute ridiculous video of cats actually that's one of the first things that they had up on the site was one of the owner's cats endless videos of the owner's cats right you like Pink Floyd, circa Sid Barrett's era right. in 67, here's a video of that. And you log on and you see it, which is a really cool deal, right? And I was like, I suppose I'm getting this video content for free. I, I You know, all right. I can't
3: watch TV without being advertised to. The bigger problem, Greg, is the copyright issue. Yeah, absolutely. What's going to happen here and what has been happening whenever we've seen these deals where the big fish buys up the smaller kind of underground fish, we saw it with Napster. Yes, Sean Fanning was the underground hero of the moment. Now Sean Fanning is working in some office for BMG, you know, well, there was trying that... droning away and, and trying to figure out how to no. make Napster cool yeah. again. I mean, th- th-
2: there was a magical moment where the Wild West, before copyright concerns of the Internet, if you read somewhere, such and such a band is drawing heavily from this 1971 German krautrock record called Neu. Right, You could go on your computer and boom, you could download that album and hear it. That's what it's like right now with YouTube. A lot of the emails I get from fellow music geek lover friends is, here's this video of Led Zeppelin taken from behind Bonham's drum set. Or, hey, Jim, weren't we at this Philly show at CBGB's in 1979? Look, here's some video on YouTube. Well, the problem is all of that music is copyrighted by the record companies. Yes, Greg, we did a story a couple of weeks ago on the show about YouTube signing a deal with Warner Music. Warner Brothers made a deal with YouTube to provide all of its videos, all of the videos in the Warner Music catalog to YouTube. But the software is also going to monitor music by Warner Brothers artists that is being distributed on YouTube that isn't being controlled by Warner's. Well, so you took some video of
3: a Warner's artist and you put it up on YouTube to share. Is that going to come down? The explosion of creativity that sites like YouTube made possible, basically... The same role that hip-hop played with the history of recorded sound, mashing up things, juxtapositions that you would not expect, taking previously recorded bits of music and recontextualizing them. Amateurs out there creating exciting, funny, watchable videos out of previously copyrighted content— Are you going to be able to see that kind of creativity now with YouTube just another corporate player? It's a really good question. I mean, OK Go having two of the most downloaded clips of
2: all time. These guys were on the verge of being dropped by their record company, I believe. They were not a priority at Capitol Records. Now what you're going to have is record companies, just as they do with MTV, spending big budgets on videos that they hope are going to take off on YouTube when, it's important to remember, the stuff that has been most popular on YouTube was made for (laughs) no money and featured somebody's cat or a dumb idea like those guys in OK Go fooling around on treadmills you know exactly once again the underground gets co-opted but that ain't new and hell I would go for a chunk of 1.65 billion if (laughs) I could get it
1: I was working
2: we've been uh, dreading this day, uh, hoping we weren't going to have to do this story, and now we are. Tower Records, which I think was the coolest national record store chain, is finally dead. It's been a long, slow, painful death. It's declared bankruptcy a number of times, uh, most lately in August. It owes something like $200 million to its creditors. Tower Records had 89 stores in 20 states. You've seen the big, big record store chains like Musicland seriously lose their prominence in the retail music industry in recent years and slowly but surely disappear. The mom-and-pops, while they continue to shrink, you know, your corner record store, the ones that specialize and tend to do, uh, you know, specialize in hip-hop or concentrate on DJ music, they're still thriving tower was in between it was a really well stocked and well run record store i was in towers in probably five or six states and Mm -hmm. you know you'd always find treats there were knowledgeable people the guy in the classical music department really knew his classical stuff the girl in the hip-hop section really knew that stuff but being neither very small and mom and pop nor really huge national chain it was in a bad position and it's been on the ropes and now probably some three thousand tower records employees out on the streets and no more Tower Records.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a sad story, Jim, and, and it's sad because Tower, as far as chains go, really did try to do it right. They had deep stock. They had knowledgeable employees. The record industry, as we know it, retail right now, is dominated. By those big box stores, the Best Buys, the Walmarts. 70% of the retail sales are through those kind of mega chains. And what's happening there, Jim? You know, we just talked about a great album last week on the show, the Wonder. Stevie Wonder's yeah. Songs in the Key of Life. You walk into a, uh, a Best Buy these days, and it's a good bet that you're not going to be able to walk in there and, and buy, buy no. Stevie Wonder's Songs no. in the if Key of lucky, Life. If you're lucky, they may get the greatest, greatest hits, hits right. but you're not going to get that deep back catalog. Tower would consistently stock that kind of thing. The Mom and Pop record store in the Corner would stock deep catalog. 1,200 retail stores uh, of the mom and pop variety closed in the last year alone. This is an ongoing trend where we're seeing retail shrinking and shrinking being dominated increasingly by these big box stores, the Best Buys and the Walmarts, and the stock in those stores is shrinking. It's becoming more and more difficult for the consumer to go into a record store and come away with a record that they actually want. Camelot Music, Musicland, Strawberries,
2: those were all national change that have closed in the last couple of years. It was hard to really cry about any of them because they all concentrated pretty much on the top 40, but you couldn't find deep catalog or esoteric independent releases. Tower Records, you could. (laughs)
3: You're listening to Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune, and he's Jim DeRogatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. Alright, that is a song called Smile from a UK singer-songwriter, Lily Allen. It is on a record called All Right Still that if you walk into Walmart today, you won't be able to get that record either because it's not, <laughs> not being well, stocked the, in the U.S. record store. There's source. a legitimate excuse for that. Yeah, it's out in the U.K., but not out
2: in America, although she's exploding. As I said, she was just on the soundtrack the other night to Grey's Anatomy, and she's touring the U.S. right now. Smile was a number one single in, in Britain. Can I be European and jet set cool for a second? Yeah. I was on vacation in Italy a
3: couple weeks ago on the island of Capri, uh-huh. and all I heard was this record. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) everywhere. But how cool is that? Here's where you can get the record, folks. Go to myspace.com slash lilymusic, and you will find that you are one of millions of people to access that website and actually listen to that song. That song has been listened to more than a million times. She's got three other songs on her MySpace site that have been viewed more than two million times in total. I mean, she is the poster child for the UK UKMySpace.com phenomenon. She was signed to a record deal in England in late 2005. Record company was in no big hurry to get her record out. She was saying, wait a minute, you know, I spent some time making this record. I'm going to go build my own MySpace site. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put this music out myself. I'm going to let people listen to my songs because the record company seems to be in no hurry to put my record out. Well, once she started building that MySpace site, word of mouth spread, she became an Internet phenomenon overnight. In the U.K., All Right Still came out, as Jim mentioned, the single shot to number one on the pop charts. Now a U.S. label has become involved in the record. They want to put it out. But they're not putting it out till January. Inexplicable. What are you waiting for January for? It's a hit right now. Unbelievable. She's touring right now. She's doing a club tour. She's going to come back in December. That will mean that she will have toured the United States twice. Yeah. without even an actual record out in stores to purchase. All right, so Greg, we made a decision
2: here at Sound Opinion Central. Although <laughs> the album has not had its official U.S. release, you can hear large chunks of Lily Allen's music for free on her MySpace site. It's not out in America, but you can find this music if you want, so we're going to review this album as a as a proper album
3: review. Her parents are relatively famous people, sort of semi-famous in in England. Her dad certainly has a track record as an actor, Keith Allen. Well, kind of an actor, a comedian, a personality, I gather. He was not much a part of her life early on because her parents were divorced. Her mom ended up becoming a a, a movie producer, and she drifted in and out of a bunch of schools. She was in over like a dozen schools while growing up in England, so it wasn't exactly like a Silver Spoon kind of scenario for Lily Allen. Oh, no, no. And and in fact, you know, Keith Allen is known as a bit of a ladies' man and has had many
2: uh, uh, girlfriends. I think that is relevant because I believe that this is one of the great (laughs) put-down albums of all time. Lily Allen is not a hip-hop artist, although that sensibility of I'm going to diss you out runs throughout this record, All Right Still, and and
3: in a very, very wickedly funny way. Worked with some top-flight producers, Greg Kirsten, who has worked with Beck, but as we said, had to get the music out herself before anyone really started to pay attention to her. Let's listen to a track from All Right Still huge record in England. It's called LDN, out soon in the United States on Sound Opinions.
2: debut album by Lily Allen what an interesting conglomeration of sounds you know you've got that 60s jet set, space age, bachelor pad, exotica, lounge music kind of thing happening. The horns are delightful. At other points in the record, you hear some ska, some reggae, you hear some new wave. Her favorite bands of all time, she told me, are the specials, Rip Rig and Panic, Reckless Eric and Blondie. All of this is coming in there, but the thing that really uh, sets it apart is her attitude. It's a particular vocal style that you really heard in the 60s on the soundtrack of those kind of you know jet set romantic comedies you know it was disaffected i am so cool and nonchalant i believe it is called al fresco i was so <laughs> that kills me and there's not a bad track on this album. Uh, Some of the others are really hitting guys at the pub who are hitting on her and she just turns to them and devastates them with a variety of insults, some of which we probably can't (laughs) repeat
3: on the air but she does not pull punches. Some poor slob uh, had the misfortune of breaking up with her right before she started uh, writing and (laughs) recording all these songs and she she had a kind of a devastating breakup. She had uh, a nervous breakdown Mm. as a result of this first big love of her life. She was only a teenager, only 18. Ended up writing these really kind of, uh, as you said, very pithily, nasty songs Coated in this kind of sunny pop glow So an incredibly subversive kind of record With the breezy Caribbean thing going on, the lounge pop And then these vengeful lyrics tucked inside The attitude is absolutely winning You listen to this and you can't help but smile When you hear a song like Smile It doesn't quite sound like anything else out there at the moment An attitude that anybody you know, between those delicate ages of, say, 15 and 25, when you're going through your first romance and your first big breakup, is going to be able to relate to. And for that matter, somebody who's 45 or 55 remembering How much that meant and how bad it felt to get dumped for the first time uh, can relate to this woman as well because the music is very accessible. People are going
2: to be turning to this record uh, for years for the perfect line to say in the pub or at the bar when they do want to dump somebody or or reject a a suitor. Uh, We're going to be getting a lot of use tonight out of the Sound Opinions record rating scale. Buy it, burn it trash it. This is a buy-it record, Greg. I love this record.
3: When it comes out in in the U.S., definitely buy it, but meanwhile, go to the MySpace site and sample it for yourself. Lily Allen has done a very smart and prescient thing by making the music available on her website. Listen for yourself and tell me that this isn't going to be worth buying when it actually does come out in the U.S. in January.
2: There's a little more Lily Allen, a song called Not Big, on our way out. When we return on Sound Opinions, we're going to talk about the new album from The
3: Hold Steady and The Scissor Sisters. Later on, we've got The Decembrists and Janet Jackson. That's next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.
1: I'm sorry if you feel that I'm being kind of mental, but you left me in such a state. Now I'm going to do to you what you did to me, going to reciprocate.
4: When I think that South Paradise was right Boys and girls in America they such a sad time together
3: That's the music of the Hold Steady, the first song on their latest album. The song is called Stuck Between Stations. The album is called Boys and Girls in America. Containing the line about boys and girls in America... Let me quote it for you, because I think it's really the key to the record. It's a little lift from uh, Jack Kerouac, actually. There are nights when I think that Sal Paradise was right. Boys and girls in America have such a sad time together. Sal Paradise, of course, being the stand-in for Kerouac in On the Road. Yes, and the record takes off from there. What what we have here is uh, 11 songs basically talking about uh, a night on the town. Basically, uh, boys and girls having such a sad time together, trying to figure out a way to fit into... uh, emerge from this as lovers and companions, but not always getting it right. This is the third album in three years from the Hold Steady. Jersey-based, New York-based band, but uh, really their roots are in the Midwest. Craig Finn and Ted Kubler, the guitar player in the band, were in a uh, Minneapolis band named Lift Your Puller for a number of years, but then broke up. Finn moved to New York, basically with the intention of not ever playing music again. Ted Kubler ended up moving to New York as well, and Finn and Kubler... Ended up being enlisted by a theater company to play ACDC covers and Black Sabbath <laughs> covers uh, in between skits at, oh. at, at, a, at a theater company in New York City. From that, they said, you know what? We really like this three-chord, basic, 70s, meat-and-potatoes classic rock. Let's start it up and just have a bunch of fun. Let's have a, find a way to have a few beers and rehearse and play the music we love. They put out three albums in three short years and have become uh, one of the most talked-about bands on the indie rock circuit in recent years. Uh, nothing fancy here. A lot of people talking about them as, "Hey, they're a bar band," in the same way that people talk about Los Lobos. Rolling a bar Stone band. said America's best bar band. There you go. Let's hear a track from Boys and Girls in America by The Hold Steady. It's called Chips Ahoy, and it's on Sound Opinions. <laughs>
4: Put $900 on the fifth horse in the sixth race. I think his name is of Boy. came in six lengths ahead. can tell which horse is gonna finish you first. Some nights of painkillers make the pain even worse. Came on six lengths ahead. We spent the whole next weekend high. I love this girl, but I can't tell when she's having a good time. How am I supposed to know that you're won't let me touch you
2: a song from Boys and Girls in America called Chips Ahoy. You <laughs> forgot the exclamation point when you introduced it, Greg. <laughs> um, boy, what a piece of work this record is. You mentioned classic rock being the roots of this band. You left out the obvious influence. This is as blatant an attempt to rework Bruce Springsteen as the Killers just gave us, with their last album. They're aping the Springsteen of Born in the USA, and Craig Finn is clearly trying to do a Born to Run. There's a drunk at a bar in the middle of nowhere, and there's (laughs) sadness all around, but there's beauty and art in it as well, and what a load of hooey this whole thing is. (laughs) It is bombastic, overblown, heartland rock. It's emo's take on the E Street Band. It's despicable. You know, there's Grand Piano and Hammond Organ and Glockenspiel. There should never be Glockenspiel on a rock record, unless it's the Decemberists. but we'll get to that later. You know, I hate when rock critics do that English major thing where you're just quoting lyrics, but there really should be a drinking game with this record. Every time you hear a blatant Springsteen or (laughs) Kerouac-like line, you take a shot. The problem would be, you'd be dead of alcoholic poisoning by the third song. He's aiming for Kerouac's boozy brilliance. He is getting... Worse than Bukowski by a hundred. This is just pathetic. I feel Jesus in the clumsiness of young and awkward lovers. I feel Judas in the long odds of the rackets on the corner. And it's like, man, what, you, what? Who uses the word rackets anymore? Uh, what? What are you going? This is a horrible, horrible, bad, bad, lousy, not good record.
3: Oh, I think you're you're nuts. I was totally prepared not to like it. I wasn't sold on these guys after the first couple of records. I did think they were kind of a glorified bar band. Nothing wrong with bar bands. Just didn't think they were anything special. They won me over with this record, Craig Finn, I think you 're selling him way short jim yeah there's some yeah, there's, there's some lines that are a little bit ripe, a little bit purple on this record, but i got to tell you, you there 's a lot more funny lines and a lot more poignant lines uh, than you give him credit for. I think some of the writing is really, really good, and it scans well not only on the record but on the page, but you like Springsteen, I like Springsteen. 1974, and I think that's where the quotes are coming from. Uh, you know, circa uh, "The Wild, The Innocent, and the East Street Shuffle." I would even predate "Born to Run" here. I think this is much more in the vein of that early, scruffier, wordier Springsteen. But th- the music behind it is a lot tougher. When I mentioned AC/DC and Thin Lizzy, I think the the riffing of Tad Kubler reminds me a lot more of that heavy, heavy rock sound, much more guitar based. Then uh, Springsteen ever was. And how do you was? explain a song like
2: Citrus, which is all acoustic guitar and the glockenspiel? I feel
4: Jesus and the clumsiness of young and awkward lovers I feel Judas and the pistols and the pagers that come with all the powders Lost in fog and love and faithless fear.
3: Well there's moments like that sure there's no doubt about it I mean these are I'm not making any claims for the originality of the music it is very much steeped in mid 70s classic rock this is about a lot of boozy nights out on the town looking for love in all the wrong places oh. for lack of a better way of, of phrasing it i mean it is a totally Blue collar guy, gal kind of scenario. There's nothing fabulous or fantasy about it. It's a totally believable scenario that he's creating. When's the last time you were in a blue collar bar and saw a guy crying into his beer
2: and thinking to himself, "I feel Jesus in the clumsiness of young and awkward lovers"? I don't know, man. I went to
3: school in Milwaukee, well, and the guy's I got to say, turn this guy, on your feet. Th- this he's guy, not gonna... you know, this guy's from Minneapolis, and I can totally understand the Midwestern bar experience that he's talking about. I gotta say, I relate to it in a big way, wow. and I think he's he's he won me over because he's talking about believable stuff. Well, I believe I, I, this guy. All right, on the Sound Opinions rating scale, buy it, burn it,
2: trash it. I uh, am am not backing off a bit. This is a trash it record. And you, you're
3: nuts, Jim. It's a uh, it's a buy it record. The wow. whole steady boys and girls in America. It is uh, it, it's a terrific record. <laughs>
2: That is a band called the Scissor Sisters from their second album, Ta-Da. The name of the song is I Don't Feel Like Dancing, and it was co-written by none other than Sir Elton John, who is a big fan. These guys have a lot of fans in high places. Elsewhere on the album, some strings are orchestrated by Van Dyke Parks, and uh, we just did an interview with Moby that's going to air on the show in a couple of weeks. Said They're his new favorite band in the world. Who are they? This is a group of real pranksters and and talented musicians, cabaret artists, theater kind of people who put together this project called the scissor sisters named i should say after a lesbian sex act in <laughs> in new york but have exploded in england their first album spawned a huge hit in 2004 with an unlikely cover <laughs> by pink floyd recognize this tune if you can it was a huge hit in the uk
0: when I was a child, I
2: So now, after uh, having this multi-platinum album in 2004, the Scissor Sisters are up at bat again, second time. I think what we have here is uh, the equivalent, um, as far as 70s disco, obviously, and R&B and general AM radio pop goes, to what the darkness was doing with heavy metal you know darkness was was obviously a kind of a sub spinal tap spoof the scissor sisters i think are on a bit of a higher level speaking of the darkness uh they're no more justin hawkins has has quit the band to go back into rehab and said the band's no good for his trying to conquer substance abuse but by their second album the joke was over so the question is darkness joke funny first album okay fine second album nobody cares do people care about the second album by the Scissor Sisters? That's the dilemma they're facing. We're gonna hear some of this music and then give our thoughts about it. There's a lot of variety on this record. If there's anything in common, it tends to be Jake Shear's very high falsetto crooning. People have a lot of fun comparing it to the Bee Gees, but also to people like Leo Sayer and the dude from <laughs> yeah. Supertramp, the long forgotten dude from Supertramp. But there's also uh, animatronic. Get it, animatronic. She does several of the vocals on here. There's a kind of Gloria Gaynor-like song of female empowerment called Kiss You Off. We figured, though, we'll give you a little more Jake Shears because he is the dominant force in the band and that falsetto does rule the day. She's My Man is the tune from Scissor Sisters, ta-da, on Sound Opinions. (laughs) ¶¶
3: man from the Scissor Sisters, right there, Jim. I think you can tell why they're bigger and much, much bigger in the UK than they are in the US. Just a little too camp, a little maybe yeah. too flamboyantly gay, perhaps for the US audience. I don't think definitely some gender bending. Oh, absolutely! There. And they're having a lot of fun with it. It's a fun band. I, I really see them sort of picking up in the UK tradition of bands like Bronski Beat and Erasure, mm. which sort of looked at uh, sexuality uh, and shined a very bright light on the gay community and, and, and celebrated it in a lot of ways with very uh, flamboyant and upbeat dance music. Scissor Sisters are doing much the same thing, even though they are New York-based, and they're an interesting band. In addition to the disco touches and the obvious... Elton John references, which is it's interesting that John is such a huge fan, and they in turn love those mid seventies Elton John records, the Philadelphia Freedoms and such. Yeah, yeah. And, and now John is of course guesting on the record. They're bringing a lot of that on board on this record. They've also got some quirky touches that I kind of like. They've got things like you know Jews harp and banjos yeah. and these kind of like odd vaudevillian well, kind of instrumentation if, if on you this read record. The
2: thank you notes. They one of their heroes is Paul Williams. Yeah, we, we were talking yeah. during the guilty pleasures show
3: about that soundtrack to. Bugsy Malone. Exactly. There's touches of that in here. So so they combine these kind of odd little touches with the up-tempo dance stuff. My issue with the band, and and Shears is an interesting guy, a smart guy, but 12 tracks basically sings lead on 11 of them of that sort of helium-filled Barry Gibb wannabe Falsetto is a bit much. I mean, yeah, uh, over old. over the over the length of an album, it gets a little wearying. I mean, there's just too much exuberance and a little bit too much of that flamboyance. Even when they're talking about things like uh, like death, there's a couple of songs <laughs> which deal with death. And intermission, <laughs> to the other yeah. side, or Misanthropy. I I don't feel like dancing that 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 track we played at the outset. They still turn it into a big party. You know, it's like these guys are up about everything, and it, it gets a little old after a while. I think as a singles band, I'm really behind these guys. I would love, you know. Love to hear their music pop up more frequently on commercial radio in the U.S. I think for your iPod, great choice. I mean, hear a a Scissor Sisters track pop up every once in a while, but I cannot recommend the album as a whole. I can't say go out and buy this record. I'd say download a few select tracks. That's what you really need
2: here. I don't know. I think I like it a little more than you. I think it goes through the course of a night at the disco. It starts out very upbeat, gets a little darker at the end. Uh, Yeah, it's shtick, but it's shtick done well, <laughs> you know, yeah, as opposed to, say, the whole steady shtick, which isn't, I didn't think. <laughs> you know, I think that they capture a spirit on AM radio at a time when Chic would be played next to Supertramp, and Casey and the Sunshine Band would be played next to Paul Williams and Leo Sayer would follow ABBA and all of that stuff is in there all at one time and if there is a weak point it is Jake Shears' vocals but uh, I think it's a Burn It record right on the cusp of Buy It I, I, I really like well,
3: it well we're in the same spot then uh, on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale I'm, I'm with you on that I, I definitely think there's a few tracks worth burning A little more. Scissor Sisters kiss you off with animatronic taking the lead on that particular vocal. We're going to be back on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with uh, reviews of the new albums from the Decemberists and Janet Jackson.
1: there's something to be said for not saying anything I've talked about racism spousal abuse empowering women children I've talked about a lot of things what do I talk about this time I've covered a lot in my 20 years and I've uncovered a lot in my 20 years Oh, <laughs> I want to keep it light I don't want to be serious I want to have fun I know I don't know that's what
3: I do know. That's Janet Jackson with the mission statement from her <laughs> uh, new record, twenty <laughs> years old, twenty Y O. This is her first record since the infamous wardrobe malfunction at the two thousand and four Super Bowl with Justin Timberlake. Timberlake managed to skate away from that pretty unscathed and go on to have a very successful uh, career since then. Janet Jackson sort of disappeared. Uh, she had just put out an album at that point that did not had not been doing well. She never did tour behind it. And the wardrobe malfunction uh, seems to have put her career, you know, in a position of peril to the point where the spotlight is on her from her record company, certainly, and from her management to come up with the goods on this record and see if she can remain relevant. You know, hard to accept, Greg, before we go on, Mm
2: -hmm. that the wardrobe malfunction, the reason we sneer so much is because it's forgotten that the album she was hyping with that Super Bowl appearance at the time was her over-the-top most blatant sexual come on. I mean, basically her bedroom whispering in your ear for some 80 minutes, you know, way too long and and soggy and saccharine. So excuse us if we don't really believe that wasn't (laughs) supposed to happen because you were in the process of trying to sell this big, sexy album.
3: And, and what's the significance here of 20 years? I mean, what does that mean? What is this 20YO? She's 40. She, you know, she's not 20. Well, what she's talking about, it's the 20th anniversary of her, what she considers her coming out album. In 1986, she came out with an album called Control. This had been after she put out a couple of... Uh, records that she didn't really have a whole lot of control over. She'd been a star of a uh, television show as a teenager. She was the latest member of the Jackson family to be trotted out in public as as sort of a a puppet, uh, you know, of the family empire rather than her own woman with her own thoughts about what womanhood meant. And the Control album in 1986, her collaboration with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were then uh, two of the hottest producers in, in America, the Minneapolis based production team that had earlier worked with Prince. They created a distinctive sound for her and a, a distinctive sensibility that came across on Control and really established the foundation for the next 20 years, her solo career. So she's paying homage to that moment in her career with this record and, and, and basically looking back and assessing, where have I been? Where am I going? I'm 40 years old now. This is, um, I'm at another crossroads. We're going to talk about whether or not she matched the peak that she achieved with Control 20 years ago in a moment. But let's play a track from 20YO first, and it's called This Body from Janet Jackson on Sound Opinion.
1: This girl that you've never seen
2: song called This Body from 20 years old, Janet Jackson's latest album. There's some news here, Greg. It debuted at number two on the Billboard album charts. In its second week, it had a precipitous drop of 74%. I think America's over, Janet Jackson. But Janet Jackson is not over herself. In fact, the most popular theme on this album is How to say it delicately? Taking pleasure in oneself. She has a man in her life. Jermaine Dupree produced part of this along with Jam and Lewis. And I have to say, this is not my dis Minneapolis night. Uh, I'm sorry I don't like Craig Finn and the Hold Steady. But Jam and Lewis have never sounded less inspired. They Mm -hmm. were really just punching the clock on this one. You know, what made Control so exciting was A, their musical innovation. B, Janet's never been a great singer. But there was a sort of self-empowerment. I'm my own woman. Yes, I'm sexy. Yes, I have desires and and I will give myself to you, but you're not taking control of me, buddy. what Control was about to me. It was a
3: musical statement and a lyrical statement. This is just literally masturbation. This is an awful, awful album. Uh, I mean, listen to the subject matter in these songs. So excited. She says, whenever you pursue it, you'll never hear the word no. This is a woman who was talking about self-empowerment, as she said right at the top. You know, I talked about racism. I talked about spousal abuse. I talked about empowering women. Now she's saying, I'll never say no. Whenever you want it, I'll never say no. she told us she wanted to keep it light this time around. Wow, I mean... On "Get It Out Me," she sings about "Boy, you're so hot." That's basically the ex- the extent of that song. Uh, do It To Me," "You Got Me Hot Tonight." Okay, yeah. so uh, you know we well, we're getting the theme here. You
2: know, you could say you could say rock critics are comparing it to "Control," and it's unfair to compare it to where she was twenty years ago. Yeah, but she's putting it out there for us. So why is she doing this, and what's the point? And especially in the wake of her being vilified, but there's none of that anger, and there's no statement other than that weird little joke at the beginning of the album about what she experienced in the wake of, let's not forget, a a, a couple of seconds that were so momentous, I say that sarcastically,
3: that they've got the federal government changing the way broadcasters operate from coast to coast yeah it, it, it was a silly overreaction to something that was covered way too much but the thing is timberlake skated away from that because he continued to make good music janet jackson has not she was she was coming off a duff album then she's made a worse one now she's got nothing to say that's that's what's really apparent i mean nine songwriters collaborated on that song <laughs> so excited where she basically says whenever you pursue it You'll never hear the word no. Yeah, to I nine mean nine, nine songwriters. Yeah. The beauty of control was it was her, Jam and Lewis together in a studio for several months, collaborating, making a record that had a sort of an organic feel to it. Here she's throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Jam and Lewis sound pretty played, as you said. Dupree gives her some con- uh, a bit of more of a contemporary feel on this record, but the record really bottoms out when the last half is just one drippy, terrible bedroom silk sheeted ballad after another it's really a dull record and and jackson is already plummeting down the charts and i think in a few weeks nobody's going to care about she's this toast she's history you know bring bring on fergie fergie's a new and better janet all okay? right on the, on the buy it burn it trash it scale <laughs> it's a trashy record you know janet jackson has made some terrific records in her career inclu- including control this is not one of them this is a trash it
5: And under the boughs I'll clothe in a snowy shroud She had no heart so hardened All under
2: Ah, that is a song called Crane Wife 3, the opening track from the fourth album overall, but the Capitol Records major label debut by the Decemberists. The album's called The Crane Wife. It's a band that's been percolating in the underground for some time. An orchestral pop or orc pop quintet from Portland, Oregon. I think a lot of people viewed them as second comers after the arcade fire similarly spirited, lush, elaborate, orchestral, theatrical tunes. I think this is uh, this is their big shot to shine. <laughs> uh, on, on a major label, on Capitol Records, I mean, you know, the label that brought us, Sgt. Peppers, right? <laughs> and Colin Malloy, the band leader, who was a guest on Sound Opinions when he was touring in very stripped-down solo acoustic mode, rises to the occasion with this concept album, which is based on, as I understand it, excuse me if I uh, condense some of it, is an ancient Japanese folktale that involves a wounded crane and a couple that rescues this bird and how their romance intertwines with that, and there's some sort of magic cape or cloth involved, and the bird, of course, is a metaphor. I don't know. I lose it at that point, I, <laughs> uh, you know, but I never understood The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway either. It doesn't really matter. There's a story here and all the songs fit together and the Decemberists clearly coming from this tradition of uh, elaborately orchestrated psychedelic rock, folk rock, a lot of weird instrumentation. We have lush violins and layered keyboards and intricately picked, finger-picked acoustic guitars and it all comes together on these tunes. Let's play, I think, the most striking track on the album. It is called The Island, Come and See... The landlord's daughter, you'll not feel the drowning. This is a 12 minute, four part. Sweet, which is uh, the second song on the album. I really wish I could play all 13 minutes for you. <laughs> we, we can. I think we're going to come in with a little part there that goes from and I don't want to tip my hand here, but goes from the, the Yes synthesizer runs into the more, shall we say Jethro Tull-esque part. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know if we'll get to the line about the saber and the bayonet and and oh, there's, got to. there's the part where he rhymes arabesque and, and later on uses the word belfry, uh, but this will give you a good sense of what the December are about on their fourth album, The Crane Wife, on Sound Opinions.
5: Down by the water, a spied and saber, the landlord's daughter. Produce my pistol, then my saber. To make no whistle, or thou will
0: be murdered. La
2: la. <laughs> 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 oh, isn't that great? Can I say the title again?
3: Yeah, go right ahead. The Island, Come and See, The Landlord's Daughter, You'll Not Feel the Drowning. Oh, four part by the Decemberists. Four-part <laughs> suite from uh, the Decembers, uh that is the centerpiece of The Crane Wife. As you said, Jim, may be the most ambitious album by one of Pop's most ambitious groups, and that's really saying a lot. I mean, this guy's been writing sort of Victorian novels set to music for <laughs> yeah. a number of years. Yeah. I mean, you know, you ju- you just don't get enough songs about trapeze artists, chimney sweeps, legionnaires. I mean, no, this is, this is, is the stuff, stuff that Colin Molloy is writing about. You got to have your thesaurus in order to just to figure out some of the stuff that he's uh, singing about because he's he's dropping words all the time. That are certainly new to the rock lexicon. You know, you, you don't hear some of the subject matter discussed. I mean, Bell. I'm okay. It's all. Jethro Tsoll was using these words. Yeah, well. They had cod pieces to boot you know the progressive rock stuff and I, and I have tweaked you and this band in the past for being uh, a little bit out in the ether and a little bit twee mm-hmm. not a little bit twee a lot twee <laughs> I yeah. mean it's it's a bit much sometimes
2: a well, bit you over use the a top word like
3: arabesque yeah. and
2: you know there's no way not to be accused of being twee
3: absolutely but on this record I I really think they they get it right for the most part uh, he is over the top and he is wordy but he's wordy but he's never clunky the the words still, I think he writes the words rhythmically as much as he does for their literal meaning, and and there's a swinging musicality to his wordplay. It's not all about, you know, look at me and look at all these $10 words I can drop on you. He's telling stories, but he's telling them in a uh, musical way, and I think the December's themselves, as a band, really step up on this record. Uh, there's some beautiful, sweeping melodies on this record. I particularly love... The way they relate to English folk rock—that period in the late '60s, early '70s, when bands like Fairport Convention were were sort of reinventing, you know, those English murder ballads. Well, let's face it, it, that's where the
2: rock context. You know, Fairport Convention, Jethro Tull blew up to cartoonish proportions. What Fairport Convention was doing with the ancient seafaring folk songs, you know, and it became sort of silly. Uh, December uh, is—it's kind of amazing how they managed to pull this off without being silly. And I think that the they reason they come
3: perilously close, at they times. come very,
2: very close, yeah, very close. You use the word belfry, you're close to silly. There's no two <laughs> ways I about mean, it. You know, my saber and my pistol. I mean, how can you even say the word saber and not kind of <laughs> chuckle in 2006? But the reason, Greg, that they succeed is the reason that the best progressive rock bands in the first era succeeded, and it was the strength of the songwriting, and also the rhythms. You know, this is a very hard-rocking record, that kind of rolling tom-tom groove that we heard at Crane Wife 3, and then the propulsive nature under that rather silly and over-the-top keyboard in that little snippet we heard of the four-part suite. This album rocks, and it keeps moving, and you're right, he is he is very rhythmically minded. I think that was what made the Arcade Fire's last album such a success. Uh, you know, it all came from the drums, mm-hmm. you know, and they all remembered that you, you gotta rock. Right. You can be as progressive as you want, but if you're not rocking, and I think also, you know, we have this other very brainy and very hard-edged uh, school of new progressive rock happening with bands like Coheed and Cambria and Tool. And that's all about the mus- musical virtuosity. And they've forgotten the hooks. But mm-hmm. you know, you go back and listen to those Jethro Tull albums or or, or Genesis. The reason they worked is because
3: they had great big hooks. Yeah. And Malloy delivers the hooks. He's got the hooks. Uh, when he was here on Sound Opinions, he talked about his love for the relatively obscure U.K. folk rocker Shirley Collins. Mm. Uh, but I hear a lot of that influence. I mis- mentioned the Fairport. Uh, I think that's where he's getting a lot of it from. And I and I love that sound. I love the way he's updated it. As he said, the melodies are really strong on this record. At the core of it, he's, he's really, I think, developing uh, into one of the most important songwriters of our time. As I said... I had my issues with this guy in the past, but I really think he's taken a step up you know, on the crane I wish we ride. could go back. Probably their best album. Uh, the first Decembrist review we did, where you just Hated beat it. me up mercilessly. Hated mercilessly. Hated Hated it. mercilessly. You were I, I thought me there were a, a bunch of twee over the top. Loving the uh, songs about butterflies. butterflies yeah, and... And, and, and I still feel that way about the So you're saying stuff. you're wrong. You're I, saying I'm you, not saying I was wrong at all about You repudiated about
2: those your records. earlier view, as you will one day about The Hold Steady.
3: Don't repudiate anything about my yeah, earlier yeah. views. The Decembrists weren't big man to admit he was wrong, Cot. But now they finally stepped up.
2: Hey, you know what? Can you say that part again? Where a man called him the most important songwriter in our.
3: That was. I think he's developing into one of the most important <laughs> songwriters. Absolutely. I mean, nobody's writing songs like he is these days. Um, Sweet vindication. He stepped up. Well, it's a buy it record. I'm happy to say that. Uh, yeah, first buy it record of their career, as far as I'm concerned. On next week's show, we are going to be jumping the gun a little bit. Halloween is coming up. I can't wait, personally. One of my favorite holidays of the year, Jim. We are going to do an overview of goth rock. We are going to talk about the important music in the genre that uh, began in the late 70s, early 80s. Because Rhino has this new box set. yeah, Yeah, wonderful stuff. And we're going to bring it right up to date. What's new? What's happening? It's an international scene. We're going to give you the big overview, and we're going to give you plenty of music. Uh, to play at your Halloween party.
2: Just in time to investigate some of the music we throw out there, you can burn it to CD and play it at your Halloween party. That's our goal. Uh, we got some thank yous to say on the way out, Mr. Cott, Tori Southside Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingers Spiegel is the producer. Associate producers are Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. We get some legal help from Dino Armiro, some technical assistance from Joe DeSou And Jim Russell used to be a man in Janet Jackson's life, but now he's <laughs> on his own over at American Public Media. Thanks for listening.